Welcome to the podcast. Joining us today, Spencer Tillman, co-host of Inside the Game, preseason Texans football analyst. So he's kind of like the Maytag repairman right now, but also college football for Fox and so many other things. Spencer, it's great to have you on. Good to be here, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I got to say, I mean, I am so heartbroken about no preseason. And I know some of the fans think, well, preseason, but this is a big time for us. We put together yeah. these broadcasts and we put a lot of work into them. And you guys, you and Kevin do a great job and Drew on the sideline. And, you know, there's so many other people involved. And I know you're involved with a lot of different TV broadcasts, but, you know, you in particular know what this is all about. So that's kind of heartbreaking. Well, it's, it's definitely a joy to work with you. And I know how hard you guys work, and you in particular. I would say this. As much as we are disappointed, I guarantee you there are a lot of rookies that probably had to put a lot of thought in it. But because they won't have a stage to kind of make their case uh, like they would have in normal years, they're probably more disappointed than we are. So yeah. let's just see how that works out. Hopefully there'll be some opportunity for them down the road. But listen, we'll, we'll load up and try to do this again, right? Hopefully we'll have a yeah. vaccine. By then we'll be able to move on. That'd be nice. Uh, so without preseason, Texans open September 10th. And, you know, based on what you've seen about the way they're handling things, the protocols, practice starting up, uh, how do you think it's going to look? How do you think the NFL is going to look in the early going without the kind of reps you'd have in joint practices or preseason games? Well, look from in terms of an execution standpoint, that's probably going to suffer a little bit because they're on a ramp up kind of trajectory right now. Um, they'll do things in a way that they'll get to the point where they're in pads and they'll, you know, muddle around a little bit to figure out how that's going to look and feel. But I think this is an unprecedented time that we're in. I think in terms of what Bill O'Brien is looking at and what he's put together, I think it's a good plan. I think ramping up is the way you need to do it because, again, those four preseason games you won't have. Um, and But that's a lot more time you got to deal with. So I think guys kind of get stir crazy. They kind of get antsy. They want to get out there and do some things. I think Going without the heavy gear right now is the right path to do it. You got continuity. You got to create at your wide receiver position between some of the speed assets you acquired there. There's just a lot of that goes into the execution. And I always go back to what Bill Walsh used to talk about. He used to talk about, um, you know, the execution part of this has got to be simple. The preparation phase has got to be complex. And that's where we do all of our hard work. So complexity and preparation, simplicity and execution, and then we'll see how they perform when, it, when the real bullets start flying. So I think the plan is a great plan, though. I got so much to ask you about, but let me ask you about the Texans first. And, and how, what do you think this year? What do you, how do you think they're going to do? How do you think the offense will perform? Defense now led by Anthony Weaver. It's going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the defense will. But let's start with the offense because that's where I like to kind of start. I think Mike Devlin's got a great situation right now. Finally, continuity along that offensive line. I think Laramie Tunzel, obviously the centerpiece of what they're doing at left tackle, is really the linchpin. And if he can kind of get those penalties kind of under control, I think they're going to be just fine across the front. The real question comes in, how will they handle or adjust in terms with the speed receivers, the new additions there? Brandon Cooks, we know about his incredible speed and all those factors. But DeAndre Hopkins is going to be impossible to replace. Everybody knows that. Sent shockwaves through the league. But as you look at it, and, and when you go back and juxtapose it to even the acquisition of Laramie Tunzel, those things are starting to balance out a little bit. They, they don't look as controversial as they did at the time. So give Coach credit. And that's what leadership, Mark, is all about. You've got to be willing and able to see what the future is going to be, but yet have the courage to make that decision right now when it may not be the most popular thing. And so that's why they, they make the big bucks. But I think it begins with the continuity of the offensive line. I like what you got there at left guard. I like Max Sharpin. I like he's outstanding. I think your center is anchored down. He's got a nice new contract. 
uh, you know, Zach Fulton is going to be excellent at the other tackle. So I think the continuity there sets the stage for the execution at the wide receiver position to be at its best. And I think Will Fuller, if he can continue to stay healthy, that'll help things. Randall Cobb, that new addition there, receiver, you got a lot of potential there to have a juggernaut. I still think ultimately we need to be better than a middling team offensively in terms of where we rank at the end of the year. You got all those weapons. You got to be better than, say, you know, 18 or 13th where we finished last year. You got to be a little bit better than that. Okay. Now, Anthony Weaver's got J.J. Watt coming back, of course. You got Merciless. You have some interesting rookies. Uh, and I think that could be interesting on that side of the ball with all he has to work with, particularly if the style's a little bit different. What are you expecting on the defensive side of the ball, Spencer? Well, I think when you've been influenced, and I was unfortunately had to attend a funeral recently, and um, you know Rex Ryan was at it, and it was John Blake's one of my my, high, my college t- teammate and, mm-hmm. and roommate, and looking at who's been an influence for Weaver, you know Romeo certainly, Rex, and some of those guys, maybe he'll be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, ultimately how that translates in a year where you may not have as many assets available to you in terms of younger players who could potentially help you out. But you have to find that balancing act. If you're going to be really aggressive, you got to look at the fact that this is not a typical preparation period. In other words, you become more prone to injuries in those situations. So you may have to dial some things back. Coaches don't like to talk about that because you're telegraphing what your tendencies are. So he, he probably won't say a whole lot about that. But I look at the influences in his life um, as a coach He's, he's been around some guys who've had aggressive philosophy. But again, to me, it's going to come down to one thing. Can J.J. Watt stay healthy? Because you alluded to Whitney Merciless. His numbers went down appreciably when J.J. went out last year. So to the degree that he stays healthy, I think everybody's going to prosper on that defensive side of the football, including the linebackers. Where we're tremendously deep at. We've got Zach, you know, I, every year that goes by, Mark, his athleticism just continues to bloom. I mean, I'm just impressed with that. Bernardrick, Maybe not as mobile as you, you would probably like, but in terms of run-stopping ability, that guy's pretty darn good. So uh, I think they're solid and they have great depth there. But I think Anthony's going to bring the youth. They're familiar with them. Uh, it's a great opportunity for him. For him. So he's going to be exciting to watch. I'm fun. Well, Spencer, obviously you played this game at a high level and enjoyed success. Uh, and I wanted to get into this. I'm going to bounce around a little bit here. But, you know, you were on KPRC, right, as the sports guy. So how did that all get started? Because I wasn't in the market then, and maybe many of these viewers and listeners aren't aware, but how did that transition go for you from being a high-level football player to high-level TV guy? Well, you know what? I actually went to Oklahoma University, Mark, as a petroleum land management engineer. That was my deal, right? Growing up in Oklahoma, and as a matter of fact, Bud Adams, the, the late owner of the Houston Oilers, uh, had the, some of the founding connections and relationships in one of the earlier companies in Phillips 66, right? So um, I had grandparents that had property near some of those facilities over there, and they knew Bud Adams. And, and so it was just kind of a weird thing. But I grew up around this whole oil and gas kind of thing, right? So I went to OU on that. And then after about maybe six weeks there, I saw the curriculum, and Coach Switzer just came to me and says, it's a lot harder than you thought it was, big boy. And I said, no, nah, it's not. I can handle it, Coach. He said, no, well, I want you to do this. He says, no matter what you decide to do, I want you to go visit this guy named Lee Allen Smith. He was the general manager of the NBC affiliate in Oklahoma City. I went there, and Switzer didn't say anything. He says, you, you like to talk a lot, man. You, you might be pretty good at this. Why don't you go do this? So I did. And, and Mark, I went on a, like a six-station tour for about six weeks. So they had me in sales. They had me in, at the time, this thing called PM Magazine. I was doing all this different stuff, right, and just fell in love with the business. And so from there, I get, did a little radio, too. Um, and so that kind of blossomed, and the train just kept going, man. It kept going. 
and, and did it in the offseason. And even with the Houston Oilers when I was playing here, uh, I would leave practice and then go immediately over to KPRC to do work for them. End up anchoring 6 o'clock, sometimes 10 o'clock news. Be right back at practice the next day. And that's where I got the phrase. Jerry Glanville used to call me Channel 2. That was my nickname, Channel 2. He said, how you doing, Channel 2, darling? And, you know, that was a tough deal in the locker room. You can't see that today. I don't think anybody can pull that off these days. But back in the day, we were able to do it. So Switzer gets some yeah. credit here, right, to no steer you in that direction. Yeah, Barry Switzer gets all the credit. Saw him just a couple of days ago. And uh, he's the king. We call him the king for a reason, man. It, mm -hmm. That guy was such a great recruiter, Mark. He could convince a shark that the desert is the best place for him to be. He's just that good, right? So, so he's a great man. <laughs> well, you played for him. You played for Bill Walsh. You mentioned Glenn, but you played for a lot of different coaches. And yeah. uh, there's got to be a big difference between Barry Switzer and Bill Walsh. I mean, talk about the differences in styles and, and how that is for a player to react to whatever the coach is trying to get done. These are very different kinds of guys. Yeah, they are. But one of the things I've learned, though, Mark, and it's a great question because, um, you know, Lombardi used to talk about leadership and what it was really all about. It's really about influence, nothing more, nothing less. And he was asked one time how he was able to get players from disparate backgrounds to perform at the high level. I mean, you have guys who are from farms, other guys from inner cities. It didn't matter. They all sent, tended to perform at a high level with the right leadership. And when he was asked that question, he says, I treat everybody the same, different, which is a profound thing when you think about it. You know, you have to have a prescriptive approach. And that's what, you know, whether it was Jerry Glanville, whether it was Bill Walsh or Barry Switzer, they all studied you and they knew your personality. Barry would walk in the weight room with the fur coat on. He wouldn't be trying to appeal to me. He would be trying to appeal to Buster Rhymes from, you know, Liberty City, uh, you know, Florida or somewhere northwestern uh, high school out of Miami, Florida. And he knew that he was that flamboyant type of guy. He was the original Buster Rhymes, you know. So, and then maybe Jerry Glanville did it with humor. Uh, Bill right, Walsh right. did it with humor too. He was a little understated, but he would do little things like, leave things in your locker room, little nuggets, little quotes, little saying, and, and would personalize and say, this kind of reminds me of you. And I never will forget, Mark, he invited me down on the wharf. This was in 2005, he died in 2007. And he invited me, this is after the career is over with, and sat down for like over a three day period and just poured out information and just gave me so much insight to the game that I never would have gotten as a player. It was above and beyond. And it really transformed the way I saw the game and the way I saw myself and the way I interact with even my daughters who are all involved in volleyball and all this other stuff. But it was a master's course in how to engage and manage and, and get the most out of people. So the one thing that they all have in common is the ability to influence. That's all leadership is, influence, nothing more, nothing less. Well, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about Buddy Tevens at Dartmouth and, and the practices not being physical and they cut down on injuries and that kind of thing. But they referenced Bill Walsh's practices. What were they like versus maybe other coaches you played for? Uh, and, and was he like that all the way through? Had he evolved in the way he handled practice and the physical nature of it in the preseason and otherwise? Yeah, Bill would give you a proposition, you know, it was, and most coaches do this to some degree, but Bill was uh, probably a little bit more clever with it than most, but he would say, hey, look, let's make a deal. Uh, it's, it's nice out here today, and wouldn't it be nice if we had the maturity enough to deal with that, and we flew around and did everything that we needed to do, didn't make any errors, and here's where it showed up in the numbers. That Camelot era in the mid-80s and, and then into the 90s, we had the greatest efficiency inside the green and red zone in the history of the game. 
We scored more touchdowns once we got inside of the 20. And why that was, he had Mark almost a Pavlovian kind of mechanism that he would use. He set up practice in such a way that when we got to the red zone preparation, uh, he had a guy blow a horn, and he, he showed me this all 22. And this is what he showed me in 2005. He showed me an all 22 of what happens when a different guy blew the horn as opposed to another guy. I'm telling you, it was like Pavlov's dog. You would see guys get up off their helmets, and they started monishing each other and touching each other because what they knew he had psychologically and systematically put in our minds, when you heard this horn, you knew that it was going to be the last preparation period or the red zone preparation. And the red zone preparation was predicating how much time we would spend in the rest of practice. In other words, if we executed those 15 plays flawlessly, practice would typically end. But if we did not, it would almost continue indefinitely, and there would be no sense or awareness of when practice would actually end. So we got conditioned to police ourselves. That's a term you hear a lot in football. Police yourselves, man, police yourself. And it was one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen before. So that was one way that Bill Walsh kind of got us in there. But he would do things like that and then trade, say, hey, look, let's put the shells on today. Or let's take the helmets off. And let's just go shirts and shorts, you know, whatever. But you got to give me this. And so we had to have efficiency in one area and we got a treat back in the other area. So everything was predicated on that. Spencer, you mentioned playing for uh, Oklahoma. We, we all remember how great those teams are. They're still a great program, obviously, one of the greatest programs in the country. Uh, you go to college, and you mentioned Switch, Switzer and what he told you about possibly getting into TV. It would have worked out for you, you get the feeling, even if you weren't a pro, you would have had a nice career path. What is it about college football that you think needs to change, be better for kids? Uh, a lot of kids, you know, a lot of media outsiders say, well, the degree – you know, and, and maybe there should be more compensation or whatever, but that degree is worth something and the ability to parlay your experience into something greater. But is enough being done uh, by the universities? Are there enough moments like Barry Switzer telling you that going on in college right now? What are your thoughts on that, so, that situation? Mark, I know that's a lot to ask. Yeah, Mark, no, it's not a lot to ask. Let me tell you, that's the most insightful question anybody has asked me. And I've done about nine interviews in the last day and a half. That is the most insightful question because what it does, it opens up the door for a guy like me who's been to these places to articulate a narrative that explains the truth about an education if you are a Division I athlete. You're going to spend about 40 hours plus or more doing what you do that garnered you that ability to compete at that level. Now, imagine if I'm an engineering student and I get an engineering degree. Well, I'm getting an engineering degree because of the academic prowess I showed in that discipline. So I go to school and go to class. That's what I'm there for. I'm there to study. The athlete is going to spend 40 hours doing something else. Then they've got to go to school. So it's like a double whammy, right? Nobody's sitting here lamenting the opportunity. It's still an opportunity, but it comes with a tremendous burden. So to your point, what I would like to do is to have an institute, and I'm working on it right now, a leadership-centric institute that would give the full narrative of what the challenge really is and make them fully aware and would develop the athlete, I'm talking about from cradle to, to the time you check out of life, to understand what the real battles are. In other words, things that deal with race and how uh, that factors into things and how we are evolving as a nation. We're still trying to get there to become that more perfect union. But there are still structural inequities that are a part of the system. Being apprised of that, knowing how to navigate in that space, understanding that there are really good people out here like the McNairs, 
who appreciate that and who have gone to great lengths to create institutions and their, their uh, monthly little sessions that they have when they're talking about these difficult issues that we tend to shy away from. The only way this nation can become what it needs to be is for us to tackle, if you will, those difficult issues and understand that we are, have more, far more in common than we do uh, not alike. So to the degree that we can do that and to the degree that I can do that, that's the most important thing that colleges can do. They can prepare them. Look, they'll go spend money out the wazoo to build these unbelievable facilities. They're incredible. Why? Because they're wooing these guys hotly every week, every month. Every, you, you see them, what, who's added this new thing? Who's added this new bells and, and whistles? But what they don't talk about is when the cheering stops, are you equipped to go compete in a world that is totally different Right? There's a difference. In, in, the, in the medical space, they call it, there's a difference between in vivo and in vitro. In a test tube, you can control things. It looks good. But in, right. in utero, it's different on the outside. So again, great question. I'm sorry for being long-winded about no. it, man. But it, it touches me right here because it's the essence of why we succeed or fail. If we don't tackle that, we don't have success. I mean, I think about this stuff all the time. When I was at the University of Miami, a friend of mine said, look at where some of these kids come from. And now they have this opportunity to be here, which is a nice place and get an education. But it's easier said than done. It's a job. Like you said, uh, my wife played tennis at Creighton. She said that was brutal. You know, like that's, that's a lot of time you're spending away from academics to be good at the sport. But what about high school even? Because we always talk about, well, college kids, you got to know that not everybody goes to the NFL, a very small percentage. In high school, not everybody goes to college. You know, you, you might dream about playing college football and you might be pretty good playing. You know, I live in Sugarland. I think you live in the area too, right? Not everybody gets to play for these great schools and, or maybe they do a little, but they don't go on to university. So like setting them up, a lot of these kids who might have their eyes set on that, but they might not get there. Well, we'll kind of reverse engineer this and just start mm -hmm. with the fact that the, the, the part of the brain, the frontal lobe that determines um, executive decision making, mm -hmm. uh, the ability to reason and make solid choices, doesn't fully mature until you're about 26, 27, right? So to your point, these kids in high school have no clue of what they're dealing with. Stack on top of that the socioeconomic challenges that some of them come from. There is a chasm between what they need to do. And so the images that they see on the television, on their, on their digital platforms that they operate on, on their smartphones, is telling them and sending them messages that you can achieve this. The truth of the matter is there were over 43,000 kids that played the various division football games last year, Mark. You know how many, roughly 320 of them are going to get drafted every year. And of those, there's a 50% attrition over that next year, year over year. So if I were to walk inside, and I've done this before at Rice University, I've walked in there and said, hey, there may have been about 120 kids in the room. And I said, how many of you guys think you're going to make it to the pros? I guarantee you, Mark, 80% of them raised their hand. I said, so that means most of the people at uh, Miami, Texas, Oklahoma, all those schools that you named a minute ago are likely not going to make it. I said, because if you guys end up making it, that means there are a lot of guys at some big name schools that are not going to make it. The capacity to repress that reality I mean, is, is, is daunting. And so I think these kids that are coming out high school, junior high school, they've got a major challenge on their hands. So again, back to your previous question, it's up to us as parents and educators and, and paragons of leadership that we call chancellors and presidents to understand the context and then come up with strategies for how to educate them uh, in that process. So it's a big question when we need to tackle. All right, T taking it back to the NFL, Andre has a great story about when he was a rookie, one of his teammates thought he got the paycheck and he thought they're going to get that every week for 52 weeks or something like that. And the guy was spending a lot of money and Andre said, you know, 
you might want to save some of that money because we're not going to get paid past December or whatever it was. Um, and I'm probably not telling it correctly, but you know, you set yourself up very well for post playing career, but a lot of guys seem to not realize that, you know, it's the NFL, which means not for long as Jerry Glanville would say. And, uh, and maybe you have, you have to set yourself up for a better career later or another career. Yeah, you do have to do that. And, and listen, um, I think every athlete should be, should be responsible for and made to have a financial responsibility course training. That should be a, a, a foundation. And you know how it is. You know, everybody get paid on Tuesday or whatever, typically every week, depending on what, what program you're with, but that's your off day. And when those checks come around or if they're direct deposited, however you choose to do it these days, the bottom line is this, there will be a cycle to that. And if you spend in an unbridled fashion, you're going to pay the piper at some point in time. So financial training, I know the NFL does a lot of it, but man, you know that there's a tall tug on these guys that go out and get the big fancy cars and the gold chains and they, they spend the type of, and listen, that's a pejorative, I get it, it's a negative, but it's not everybody, I, I get that. And I don't wanna fall into that trap because there are a lot of guys that they're responsible, but I think as a staple, uh, all of them should have extensive financial training. Spencer, how did you go from KPRC to CBS to calling games to being the studio host? You were, you were the longest running studio host you had the longest streak going for a long time in network television, no matter what the sport. Yeah. You know what? Um, I, I, Sean McManus, the, the president and chairman uh, at the time of the news division and the sports division, when he hired me, I want to say in 99 it was, he said, you're going to be here a long time. And I said, I think I know why, but can you tell me? He says, he says I've watched you at WABC. And I was at the ABC affiliate, the owned and operated station, for a couple of years before he saw me. Oh. And here's the thing about it. Uh, Mark, there are guys out there who, when I was a player, who were faster, who could do things, but nobody was gonna outwork me. That was my deal. You just, you weren't gonna out, and I was half crazy, right? You had to be that way uh, when you're playing with Jerry Glanville. Cause we're gonna think about it. When I got drafted, Mark, we had Alonzo Highsmith, who was like the third or fifth player taken overall in the draft pick out of Miami. We had, as, as a running back, and we're running a solo back, single back set. Mm -hmm. You had, um, uh, let's see, who was it? Uh, Lorenzo White out of Michigan State, who finished third in the Heisman. You had Alan Pinkett, who finished second out of Notre Dame, right? And they just kept coming, kept coming. And no matter how good I was coming out of Oklahoma as a running back, you know, I had to follow that. Mm -hmm. So I knew I had to make a name for myself in some place, and that came on special teams, right? And uh, I remember the late C.O. Bricado, who was one of the scouts, one of the great yeah. scouts in the league, came up to me and says, you know, I'm so proud of you. And I, I'm like, okay, well, why? He said, because you work so hard. He says, nobody would ever thought that a running back coming from an elite college like Oklahoma at running back would be working as hard as you're working on special teams. Because you know how guys are. They come in, they've been starters at a major university. They're expecting to be pampered and all that other stuff. No, man, I had to have a hard hat and lunch bell mentality. And I transferred that mark in everything I do. So that's how I got from, WA, from KPRC, um, even before then, in Oklahoma City, um, KTRK um, later came in the mix, but it began in Oklahoma City, Houston, to KPRC TV, to KTRK Channel 13, KPIX before then, and then WABC in New York, and then CBS um, Network, and now Fox with Tim Brando. So it's been a, been a great run. I grew up watching WABC in New York. Did and you listening, really? And listening to WABC Radio, 77, you ABC. Know. <laughs> so uh, you and Tim Brando have great chemistry. And you were together at CBS, and now you're together on Fox doing college football games. That's got to be special to be able to work with somebody like that for that long in, in different ways, too. 
Yeah, we joke all the time. I tell Tim, man, I'm going to check your DNA because Tim is a, actually a brother, right? He's just he's just <laughs> trapped inside a white man's body. He's a brother. <laughs> we joke like that all the time, and that's why we get along. He spends time with my family. I spend time at his house. Our kids know each other. They're all over social media engaging. Mm-hmm. When they have babies and kids and all this stuff, they know it. His son is named his. His, his daughter's firstborn is named Spencer. I mean, it just kind of shows you how crazy it is. I mean, we, we are truly connected. And if anybody was to hold up a, a broadcast team as an example of how to do this race thing and how to do life, I think they need to look at Tim Brando and Spencer. If I, if I it can be so selfish to say so my, myself. I mean, we just refuse it to hit, man. And, and I think it's, it's the right way to go about doing life. And, um, and I, I thank my, my late mother, LaRue, for helping me understand how important it is to, to understand the value of people based on their character and nothing else. Well, it's great. I mean, what you just said there, it's just all about people, right? People trying to get along. And, you know, we've been through so much as a country. I mean, if in the last few months, so much has come to the surface. Yeah. And I'm going to phrase this carefully, but is it heartbreaking to you to see some of the things that have happened? I know some of the things that caused the, the, the sure. uprising and conversation, but is it encouraging, heartbreaking? How do you categorize, characterize what you've seen in the last three, four months? Another great question. I, I, I love where we are right now, and here's why. Nobody wanted to see George Floyd pass in the way that he did with Houston connections and so forth. No one mm-hmm. wanted to see 45 million people knocked off their, 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 their life treadmill and doing what their normal routines are and thrust into an economic difficult situation. Nobody wants to see those and, and lay bare before the world what ails America, you know, its original sin. However, what I can tell you, there is a natural pattern to how we move from scabs to scars. We are not an open wound anymore as a nation. We're past that stage. Can we get better? Yes. But I would much rather have a scar or scar, which is where we're headed to, than to have an open wound. We've got a little bit of a scab right now. And when that scab heals and peels away, there will be a scar. And that will be better than a scab, right? So we're moving and progressive. And you can accept the fact that we are getting better. But yet, just like a coach, I mean, I go back and I always try to pass things through the filter of sport. There was a reason why for these long-suffering fans out here to understand the Houston history and um, back in the day when Buddy Ryan and Kevin Gilbride got into a fight on the sidelines, there was a reason why they got into a fight. You know why they did it? It was because we had a lead and Buddy Ryan was running a 46 defense. His guy's tongue were hanging out. They were panning like lizards on a hot rock. And he was basically saying, you're running this passing offense and our guys are on the field right after they get off help us out let's play complimentary football with one another let's understand right and so they weren't playing complimentary football and there's a better way to settle that than to throw a punch at somebody (laughs) what they were trying to do is get them to say hey you know what and I guarantee you in a private room without consequence you talk to Kevin Gilbride he'd say you know what that'd be a good idea if we stop trying to run up the scoreboard or guess what happens when you throw the ball the clock stops you know let's do something to help the defense that mindset wasn't there. And I think if we can do that as a nation, understand what the other side has been through, gone through, that level of empathy. And I think it's time for the majority culture to do some listening, mm-hmm. but it's also time for the minority subset to understand, listen, I'm gonna be frank with you. If I'm a white guy and I'm hearing all of this information about what's going wrong, I'm seeing statues coming down. Let me tell you, man, I'm dizzy at some point. I'm saying enough is enough. I may even go there and say that, but that's when we back up and we slow down and say, hey, look, What you've seen happen in a relatively short period of time is something that has been festering for nearly 420 years. So what we're doing is trying to get away with that. At no point was it ever the right thing to do. 
We acknowledge that and move on. But we, as minorities, can't allow that to hover over the heads of people in such a way that we bludgeon them with it, right? That's our responsibility. But yet at the same time, our majority brothers and sisters have to understand that the legacy of that, just like, let's just use for example, if a person has been bequeathed a certain amount of money and they leverage that to become something more in life, alternately, those vestiges of slavery carry down through generations and they stay with you. And you say, if it's not relevant, if it's not germane, yes, it is germane. It's still the pathologies that exist in communities are still there in many ways. And you're still dealing with the generation down the line. And if we can ever get to the point where we feel, let's just say for you as a part, a member of the majority culture, where you can imagine, if you will, the encroachment of something like that. And to the extent that you can, that level of empathy starts to grow. And then we start to listen and anticipate what it must feel like to be in that situation. I push back when I hear people say, there's no way I could ever imagine what it's like. You, yes, you could. Just think long and hard enough if, you, if the privilege that you have in life was suddenly taken away, and you may not even think it because rugged individualism is part of who we are, right? As Americans, and forget about black or white, right. but this sense of rugged individualism, most people don't see that they're part of privilege, but we are, and particularly if you're part of the majority culture. So to the extent that we can be aware of that and not bludgeon each other with it, but yet move in an affirmative way toward inclusion, not just diversity, we're going to be great in the end because we've got great hearts. And I believe that's, that potential is always going to be there. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think sometimes it's, it's so subtle and, and people yeah. like me don't understand it. You know, I, every time I've been pulled over by a police car, I've deserved it. You know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm going a little rapidly or I might have, you know, done something that's against the rules of the road, but I've never been pulled over because I'm just driving through my neighborhood. I know that happens to, you know, black people a lot, so. Eight times since, and again, I may be indicting somebody here, but eight right. times in the last seven months, I've been stopped since we've been incorporated by Sugarland. Now, I'm not beating wow. up on Sugarland police, love them, but I've been here that long, right? And, mm -hmm. and I, know, I know the reasons why, and I actually turn it into kind of a bit of a game for me now when, they, when, when it happens, and I could tell you some really fine stories about it, but you don't want to waste your time with that. <laughs> Well, you turn it into a game. <laughs> I do. I turn it Man into of the a two. game. <laughs> no, I'm, at, I'm, I'm like that point. too. I'm like yeah. ten of the two. Uh, yes, officer. Yeah. But I'm, I mean, but one I'm time, guilty. I'm, yeah, one time I'm turning left, getting ready to go to my house. I'm literally, yeah. I can see my house, and then I could, and the cop is three lanes over, going to his right. But when I turn my peripheral vision, old running back skill set, I see the light flash, and I'm thinking to myself, oh. well. I know he didn't see, it's not behind me, so he didn't run my tags. He didn't see anything else. So what he may have seen was just, I don't know, maybe <laughs> black person, I don't know. So I turn and I stop immediately as I get out of the intersection and he pulls up beside me. And I looked and I rolled down my window and I just smiled at him and I said, sir, that's my house right there and I'm headed home. I said, uh, I don't think I did anything wrong. So if there's nothing here, let's just both go our way and just do what we're supposed to do. And I just smiled and he just smiled back at me. Martin All right. Going. So, I mean, I treat it as a game sometime and we, we can lament how, how, why it happened in the first place and all that, but you know what, we're going to get past all of that eventually and we'll get to a better place of that. I'm convinced. Well, let, I think that's a good note to end it on and Spencer, you're <laughs> so encouraging and enlightening. So we really appreciate the time as always. And uh, it's a blessing to have you involved with the Texans and uh, always a pleasure to catch up. Pleasure's mine. Thank you, sir. Thank you.